0: Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com artcurious for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Listen up! When I was a kid growing up in the 1980s, one of my favorite things to do was watch old Mickey Mouse cartoons. I loved seeing Mickey interact with Pluto and Goofy and could probably have watched hours of these cartoons if you let me. But one particular character stood out for me and quickly became my favorite. I loved the scrappy and grumpy Donald Duck. I still do. And while some of my best-loved episodes revolved around Donald's skirmishes with Chip and Dale, or around the exploits of his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, I still remember seeing numerous cartoons featuring Donald as a soldier during World War II. Looking back on my childhood, it seems funny and bizarre to me now that I was exposed to American World War II propaganda, but it's true. And it happened with somewhat regularity for someone like me, who had consistent access to the Disney Channel. Of course, as a child, I didn't really think much of it. It just seemed like yet another Donald Duck cartoon to me. But now, I look back and find myself really curious. how did Walt Disney and his team, especially a blustery cartoon duck, get involved so specifically in wartime propaganda? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or even more fun than you can imagine. And today we're talking about big names who got in on the action of creating significant war propaganda during World War II. Walt Disney and his plucky creation, Donald Duck. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. For three years, from 1942 and through the end of the war in 1945, Walt Disney Productions, headquartered at Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California, produced both propaganda cartoons and educational films in conjunction with the U.S. government. But it seems like Walt Disney himself wasn't necessarily the most obvious choice to helm these jobs. Or at least he didn't immediately think so. At the beginning of the 1940s, Walt Disney was dealing with a human resources crisis in his studio. Inspired by labor reform in the post-Depression years, studio employees, from the top animators all the way down to the so-called pen and ink girls, rallied and rioted for better pay and unionization. But Walt Disney wasn't thrilled with this development. And the perceived betrayal he felt at the hands of his employees, whom he felt were really like an extension of his family, was more than disheartening it was shattering. In a special Time Life publication from 2016 featuring Disney's wartime biography, author James Kaplan reported that Walt wrote, quote, I have a case of the DDs, disillusionment and discouragement. After a rejuvenating vacation to South America in late 1941, Walt returned to find that a few things had changed in his absence. Most directly for him, he discovered that his brother, Roy, had resolved the labor dispute and had met the vast majority of the striking studio employees' demands, essentially giving them a significant amount of power within the studio. But the bigger challenge for the country as a whole was that Pearl Harbor had been attacked on December 7th, launching the nation and Disney Studios along with it into World War II. Prior to this moment, it appears that Walt Disney was a little distracted when it came to his knowledge of the war. According to James Kaplan, Walt had once been asked about how the war might affect the studio, and Walt replied, point blank, quote, what war?" Now, I don't blame Walt Disney as anything other than being probably really busy and desperately trying to build and or save his struggling empire during a very difficult period in his own personal history. But at the same time, it was ridiculous that someone of his magnitude would have been so unaware of the worldwide crisis. After Pearl Harbor, though, he really had no choice but to face it head-on, and that was due to multiple motivating factors. First, just like in many other businesses in the U.S., men from the studio enlisted left and right to support the war effort, and Disney found himself with only so much manpower left over. This hit even harder when half the studio was physically requisitioned as a base for troops who were acting to protect a nearby airplane factory from the possibility of air raids. Walt Disney Studios could literally no longer function at its same capacity, and thus, in order to keep from shutting down completely, the other half of Walt Disney Studios had to surrender to the government requests that came their way. From most reports, it looks like the Navy were the first to come calling to Walt Disney, but the Army, the Air Force and even the Department of Agriculture and the Treasury followed in quick succession because of the studio's unique position to create propaganda that would straddle the line between subtlety and directness, and to do so with humor, creativity, and with internationally recognizable and hugely likable characters. Though other organizations and studios, like Warner Brothers, for example, were also intimately involved in these propaganda efforts, no one had quite the same reach and scale as Disney, And as we heard in the last episode of the Art Curious Podcast, episode number 24, one of the keys to Allied success in the war effort was to reach the whole family, not just the soldiers, but the families they left at home, including and especially the children. And for this purpose, Disney was really the end-all, be-all of family propaganda producers. Honestly, the first rounds of war propaganda that Walt Disney and his animators were asked to produce were really quite dry. These were educational and training films meant to assist servicemen on various topics ranging from navigational tactics to aircraft maintenance, and the quote-unquote Disney element of these films was really nothing more, in most cases, than animated graphic design to explicate the usage of control panels or parachutes or so forth. Disney also paired with director Frank Capra, himself a colonel in the U.S. Army, to create promotional videos for the Army, which was at least more popular than the bare-bones educational videos and were subsequently released to the general public, where they gained a modicum of interest. Seeing the reception to these war videos really struck a chord for both Disney Studios and the Office of War Information's motion picture unit, and a metaphorical light bulb went off. Why not make propaganda films for the general public? Ones that entertained as much as educated, And if the propaganda films could be styled like normal animation shorts, traditionally added to the start of most motion pictures, then there really would be a built-in audience. All of a sudden, it seemed like a win-win. Why and how Donald Duck became a literal poster child for Walt Disney Studios during World War II is a fascinating subject in and of itself. Donald Duck was introduced in the mid-1930s to an American audience who had fallen deeply in love with Mickey Mouse quickly upon his debut in Steamboat Willie in 1928. Mickey would always be the top star, famous for his positivity and a sweetness that seemed to pervade every inch of his animated cell, even in the midst of daring do or mischief. But that same sense of kindness, of essential goodness that Mickey embodied, meant that he would be rather limited in the activities or the scenes in which he could be involved. He was too clean, too pristine, too perfect somehow. Someone spunkier, and even a little bit unhinged, was needed then to act as his foil. And hence, the short-tempered, ever-so-tenacious Donald was born. And his signature determination and bravado meant that he was the ideal stand-in for both soldier and civilian alike. Who wasn't about to give in to the enemy? Donald Duck. Who would jump in and work at his very best for the good of all Americans? Donald Duck. Mickey Mouse would never be defined as someone with a real fighting spirit. But fighting is what Donald Duck usually did best. Donald's wartime debut was in a nearly nine-minute cartoon short titled Donald Gets Drafted from 1942. It follows what you’d mostly expect from the title, meaning that we watch Donald move from enlistment through basic training, procuring his shiny pressed uniform, and also through the physical exams that confirm his health and well-being. All of this is done to a happy tune that chimes, quote, "The Army’s not the army anymore. It’s better than it’s ever been before." There is nothing in this propaganda piece that would hint at the darkness of war, or even at the goings-on in Europe, the South Pacific, or beyond. And as such, it's the perfect complement to the smiling families that were epitomized in many propaganda posters across the US during the same time period. Everyone is cheery, helpful, and undertaking even the biggest of challenges and changes with a whistle and a smile. People already love Donald almost as much as they did Mickey Mouse, so they were apt to already be inclined to identify with or be moved by this character. And if an anti-war protester couldn't be swayed by a high-spirited duck, then no one could ever change his mind. The Office of War Information requested that Disney Studios formulate particular videos for specific purposes. Very specific, indeed. The best examples of this occurred in both 1942 and 1943, after the success of Donald Gets Drafted. In those years, there was a massive overhaul in income tax legislation, so that over 15 million Americans were suddenly eligible to pay a tax that was previously not required of them. The problem was that this overhaul happened during these lean war years, when times were already tight. Asking civilians to pay income tax and support the war effort down the line would probably be too much to ask. So Donald Duck to the rescue, with two very similar videos. First came The New Spirit in 1942, which was remade in a slightly flashier, much more obvious way in 1943's The Spirit of 43. Here, we see Donald under the influence of the proverbial angel and devil on the shoulders, attempting to convince him of parting with his hard-earned cash. Of course, the kindly version of our hero saves his money for income taxes. But the devil Donald's connection to the war is made very explicit here with the words, spend for the axis or save for taxes, highlighted, as Donald considers whiling away at a bar called the Idle Hour Club, whose logo is, naturally, a swastika. Of course, the wily Donald makes the quote-unquote right decision, and this victorious choice ended up being seen by over 25 million Americans in the year that it was released. And though I haven't been able to dig up any specific data about how much The Spirit of 43 really affected tax habits, a survey of those who viewed the short noted that a full one-third of spectators were so moved to begin saving in earnest simply because of Donald Duck's actions. Even the New York Times admitted to being swayed by Donald's delivery, writing in an early review that the show was indeed a, quote, "...thoroughly agreeable inducement to a tough task." As author Marcia Blitz noted in her seminal text on Donald Duck, quote, Donald can make a painful process, such as paying taxes, as much fun as possible, Unquote. Coming up after the break, Donald Duck becomes a Nazi. Really. Stay with us. Do you want to help support the show and keep it going? Not only can you donate to us on our website, but you can also benefit from a very special offer. For listeners of The Art Curious Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their awesome service. Two books that are currently fascinating me are Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History, in that order, by Bridget Quinn, and The Art of Rivalry, Four Friendships, Betrayals, and Breakthroughs in Modern Art, by Sebastian Smee. You'll find these, as well as the biggest bestsellers like Turtles All the Way Down by John Green or What Happened by Hillary Rodham Clinton and thousands more. And for every free trial, the Art Curious podcast gets a little kickback, which is so incredibly appreciated and goes a long way to keep us going. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com artcurious. Again, that's audibletrial.com artcurious for your free audiobook. Welcome back to the Art Curious podcast. Donald Duck's biggest outing, and certainly the war cartoon for which he is most remembered today, is one in which he is surrounded by the nightmares of Hitler's regime in 1943's cartoon Der Fuhrer's Face. Another eight minute wartime cartoon, Der Fuhrer's Face, which was originally titled Donald Duck in Nazi Land, that's N U T Z I land, not Nazi, takes Donald through one full day under the thumb of Hitler and his minions. The farce begins straight away with an unforgiving 4 a.m. wake-up call by a German polka band fronted by the rough and racist caricatures of Japanese Emperor Hirohito, Hermann Goering, Joseph Goebbels, and Benito Mussolini, singing a song with the same title as the cartoon itself. The first words, for example, declare, quote, When der Fuhrer says we is de master race, we heil, heil right in der Fuhrer's face, unquote. As viewers, we are treated to a brief glimpse of the outside world in Nazi land, only to see that his own propaganda has spread to nearly every element. Even the fences, bushes, and one really lowly windmill are shaped like swastikas. Not that Donald really notices, because he's indoctrinated too. And he salutes Hitler's photo on a swastika-papered wall before getting a barely palatable breakfast and heading off to work in a munitions factory under extreme duress, where According to an accompanying song, he works for, quote, 48 hours a day, unquote. He's threatened constantly with knives and bayonets, unable to keep up with the workload and the constant requirements to salute each and every image of the Fuhrer's face that passes him on his conveyor belt. Until, at the very end, a frantic Donald awakes from his terrifying dream, dressed in stars and stripes pajamas, and the shadow of the Statue of Liberty, not Hitler's upheld hand, is projected on his wall. It was all a dream. Thank goodness, it was all a dream. And it turned out to be a big dream for Disney Studios, too, who scored an Academy Award for Best Animated Short Subject Film for Der Fuhrer's Face, to date the only Oscar that Donald Duck has ever won. Part of its popularity, and one of enduring interest to scholars, is that it straddled that delicate line between light and dark that many of the best propaganda cases were known to do. It had a happy ending, of course, but the majority of the cartoon is dark comedy at best, and just plain dark at worst. As noted in the book Learning from Mickey, Donald, and Walt, Essays on Disney's Edutainment Films, Donald's audience would have been familiar with rationing and overtime at defense plants from their own experience. Der Fuhrer's face demonstrated humorously how much worse the situation was in Germany. Donald's dream self is obviously motivated solely by fear rather than any sort of allegiance to Hitler, and any sign of resistance, such as grumbling on the assembly line, is met with instant threats of violence. Though the tone is light, the film nonetheless brings home its points about forced labor, shortages, and fear among those under Hitler's rule and the corollary that Americans are, or should be, happy to work for their country's war industries." Donald Duck's inherent likability, as well as his everyman personality—if a duck could be an everyman, that is—meant that Der Führer's face and similar films were very successful propagandistic tools. Donald had a temper. He had a pessimistic streak. He could be fearful, when also at turns he could be both brave and cowardly. He was, in essence, more human than most cartoon characters of the day, especially the idealist Mickey Mouse. But there was an added element that contributed greatly to Donald's success, and that was a perceived distance from the US government. We talked briefly in our last episode about some of the inherent distrust of propaganda that came from the Office of War Information, with citizens concerned that the single source messages in these pamphlets and posters were coming from a controlling governmental force that would feel more totalitarian than democratic. But a cartoon that featured a beloved figure from one of the most cultural behemoths of the past decade? it was almost a guaranteed success. The irony, of course, is that Walt Disney and his animators were working directly under governmental commissions, and this fact was made blatant in the opening credits for each cartoon. But this was propaganda that was entertainment first, and thus different from any other method previously experienced. American audiences would consume these messages not in storefronts or factories as they did with most propaganda posters, but in movie houses where they were enjoying a respite from the war. And the relaxing environment and atmosphere in which they absorbed these messages certainly meant that those same messages may have had a better shot at lingering in an otherwise overtaxed mind. Finally, there was the sense of humor evident in these cartoons, dark though it may have been in parts. Most of the propaganda from the Office of War Information had little, if any, humor to them, as an independent survey on methods of messaging had somehow confirmed that humor was one of the least successful ways to ensure audience participation. This played out in many of the especially dark posters we discussed in Episode 24. In retrospect, this seems rather short-sighted, especially given the extreme popularity of Donald Duck's military outings. The duck and his special kind of silliness could not only be enjoyed by children, but also by their parents, who had been exposed to Donald for over 10 years at that point. And let's not forget the war-weariness of entire sections of society across all ages. Donald's hijinks were the perfect salve. His appeal was thus multi-generational and across all classes, and no one else was better suited to ensure the positivity and participation of millions upon millions of Americans. It would be remiss of me to stop here and let this seem like a clear exaltation of the Disney and Donald Duck model of propaganda, because it certainly had its drawbacks. The first is that, to our 21st century eyes, there are some terribly racist stereotypes and politically incorrect inclusions here. I've touched briefly on the awful caricature of Emperor Hirohito in Der Fuhrer's face. Suffice to say, that is even worse in a later Donald Duck outing, titled Commando Duck, Donald vs. the Japanese. This was released in 1944, and it begins innocently enough with Donald undergoing basic training similar to his travails in Donald Gets Drafted. But then he is released into his very first solo mission quite quickly with these simple instructions. Destroy a Japanese airbase. Oh, you know, just destroy single-handedly a Japanese airbase. Naturally, Donald does indeed achieve this, mostly by accident I'll add, by exploding his river raft and causing a flood to wipe out the aircraft below him. But before all that though, Donald comes into contact with various examples of the enemy. And almost each and every one of them is a caricature of slanted eyes, buck teeth, and pigeon English, with an added element of presumed stupidity and over-politeness. For example, two Japanese snipers attempt to take aim at Donald as he floats down the river, but the snipers get in each other's way and then obscure any shots. So instead of rectifying their situation and taking aim again, the snipers engage in repeated comedic apologies. The takeaway is this. The enemy was just not smart enough to focus on what was right in front of them. It's awful, and it's embarrassing, and it's wrong. It's also a sad product of the time in which it was made. As we've discussed before... The blatant racism prevalent in most of the U.S. at this time was certainly also present in the artworks produced during the war. And sadly, the animation from Disney Studios was no different here. There was also an easiness that such stereotyping could bring to animators and producers, who wouldn't have to reinvent symbols or characters' whole hog, and could instead rely on preconceived notions and stereotypes to bring their points across. It doesn't excuse matters, but it does at least place it into a bigger context. Overall, the war years, especially 1942 through 1943, became some of the most productive of Walt Disney Studios' history. In those two years alone, it produced over 200,000 feet of film, which accounted for more than five times its usual cinematic output. And as Disney's connection to propaganda became stronger and more well-known, its connection to the war did too. Beginning in mid-1942... Disney artists were requested to produce special insignia and logos for various American troops. According to a report in Der Spiegel magazine, interestingly enough, some animators created all new characters for military insignia, such as, quote, a mosquito riding a torpedo for the Navy's new torpedo boats, a bellicose cow from Dumbo for bombing squadrons, and a turtle with a broom for minesweepers, unquote. And as the official artists were at work, so were soldiers, who wholeheartedly adopted already beloved Disney characters as their own personal talisman, decorating their tanks and jets, not only with Donald, but also with Mickey, Pluto, Goofy, Dumbo, and others. As summarized in Der Spiegel, quote, These were symbols of the American way of life, of freedom and democracy, of everything that was at stake. Mickey Mouse is even said to have been a password used by the Allied forces on D-Day, unquote circling away from his creations and back to Walt Disney for a moment. Walt didn't initially love having to surrender both studio space and animators for the purpose of creating war propaganda, but as Project cycled about and the Donald Duck shorts in particular became more and more popular, he grew to accept and even greatly appreciate his own unique role in the war effort. It eventually became a source of pride for Walt and was one he used to his personal advantage only a few years later when he testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee in October of 1947. In his denunciation of communism, Disney's voluntary speech provided him with the opportunity to prove not only his essential Americanness, as it may be, but also his credibility and expertise on what propaganda looked like, how governments could use it, and how successful it could be. When asked about the efficacy of his animated shorts by lead HUAC investigator H.A. Smith, Walt pointed to the spirit of 43 in particular and said, quote, Well, on the one for the Treasury and taxes, it was to let the people know that taxes were important in the war effort. And as they explained to me, they had 13 million new taxpayers, unquote. He knew what he was doing, he was saying, and the American public and the world had reaped the benefits with victory with his help, he insinuated. For something that had so much power in America during the Second World War, it's funny to see how much of this propaganda was just quickly whisked away after the conflict ended. Like many other forms of propaganda, such as the works by the combat artists, the general public just didn't want to be faced with memories of war, even if there was an entertainment facet to the propaganda. So Der Fuhrer's face, Commando Duck, and others were just swept aside into that fabled Disney vault. And Donald himself returned to his typical civilian hijinks, sparring with Chip and Dale, corralling his nephews, grumbling about Pluto, and even palling around with some foreign friends in feature-length films like Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros. Somewhere along the line, Donald's military service was forgotten at best, and ignored at worst. But exactly 40 years after the end of World War II, Donald's sacrifices were remembered with love and not a little bit of humor— as he was finally given an award for his military valor and service. That year, 1984, the U.S. Army celebrated Donald's birthday by promoting him to the rank of Sergeant and immediately discharging him honorably from all duties. At last, Donald Duck could be a civilian again. Next time on The Art Curious Podcast, it's back to Europe to uncover one of Hitler's secret wartime plans. And it was all about the art. That's in two weeks. Subscribe now. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our new theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Research assistance is by Stephanie Pryor, and social media help by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative Video, Content, Ideas. Learn more at KABONKI.com. The Art Curious podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. Anchor Light is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. For more information, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. What this means is that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. Please see our website for further details. And of course, you can also go there for images and links to our previous shows. That site is ArtCuriousPodcast.com. And you can contact us via the website, email us at ArtCuriousPodcast at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. And remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. It really helps more people to find us. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history of the World War II era.